Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about autism stories. Fear is an emotion that I'm all too familiar in my life. And, you know, many times it's uh, taken over my life. However, as I've gotten older, I've found some ways to use this emotion to work for me and not against me. That's why I'm thrilled to talk with Marianne Luis on this episode of Autism Stories about learning things that she's fearful of and her book, Obsessive Intrusive Magical Thinking. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Marianne, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start off by just learning where does your story in the autistic community begin? I guess, as with all of us, it starts with birth you know? <laughs> I know some people like to think it's something that you can like catch or whatever but it's <laughs> you know you have much of a choice but I actually got I had quite a lot of problems at school and with employment and stuff but I think because of when I grew up like in the 90s and also being a girl you know everyone just thought I was badly behaved even though I was literally I was literally at school like biting people <laughs> and walking out of classrooms and like you know, do all, all the things that you would, you know, I think if I was a little boy, you'd figure it out a bit faster. So I didn't get any sport. And then I started trying to get a diagnosis on the NHS when I was like 22 or 23 because I had to work in an office. And I think that's a really easy way to find out that you've got <laughs> problems, <laughs> you know, doing things the way that everyone else can. And then with some back and forth with like health services and pursuing diagnosis stuff, I got diagnosed two and a half years ago now. So every once in a while, I see a title of a book that really grabs my attention, and I really want to know everything about it. <laughs> and, I, and I had that experience when I saw your book, Obsessive Intrusive Magical Thinking. I didn't think about it until I saw this book, but my life probably has been made whole by obsessive thinking. <laughs> so how has obsessive thinking been helpful to you in, in your life? Something I obviously write about in the book is that, you know, as I'm sure you know, so there's a lot of negatives with it. Like, I had OCD as well, and I think, especially when you struggle with, you know, I think the worst thing about obsessive thinking is, like, when you already struggle with social interaction, I think every single time you speak to someone, you're then spending the next several days thinking, like, did I say something wrong? Do they hate me? What did I do wrong? Like, especially, and I always felt so negatively about it, because I just wished that I could not. You know, when you're thinking about bad things all the time, you just... You know, and then when I really thought about it, especially in terms of being autistic, I think I realized that, like, you know, there are so many things, like, our special interests and, like, our ability to, like, pursue what we like doing. Like, for me, when I was little, that was reading, and it was, like, Lego, and it was a big one for me. And learning about anything, whatever it was, like, I had, like, hundreds of special interests, and I would just have one for, you know, I think it's, like, a, an assumption that we only have one. Like, you're the train guy, or you're the Star Wars guy, or you're, like, <laughs> but I think... Most people I know kind of phases of like, you know, a hunt that kind of rotate and like t- 
take different importance or different times of their lives or like have kind of seasonal special interests. And like for me, I think that's the thing that's been the most helpful because like I had like obviously I'm obviously I had problems at school and stuff. I had problems with my family and stuff. And like I think being able to like be so obsessively in love with certain things and like books and movies and stuff, I think really kind of gave me purpose and gave me something to do other than keep getting into trouble. <laughs> When people think about obsessive, they usually think of OCD. Yeah. Do you think there are some false narratives of OCD that you kind of would just wish would go away? I think there's a lot. I think it's getting a little bit better. I think something that was always the case was that no one ever understood um, what was going on inside. Like, I had always, anything I'd read about OCD throughout my life was about people washing their hands or having, like, cleanliness compulsions and, like, Obviously, that is the case for some people, but for me, I I spent my whole you know childhood having these really dark, obsessive thoughts about like you know people I love dying and stuff like that, and then I would do things to get rid of that thought, and it might not be um, cleaning, it might be like intrusive thought, like step in the road without looking, or like you know weird stuff like that, or like doing things over and over again, or like going back and checking the door is locked, and stuff like that, and like I think people don't understand that the action that you can see someone doing. Like repetitive action is a response to like this internal thought process. Like there are some people who don't have the um, compulsion, but just having the thoughts is like bad enough. <laughs> like constantly, like you know, it's like you're fighting with your own brain, basically. In preparing to talk with you, I read that part of your OCD is about things that you're afraid of, and and you try to learn as much about them to kind of reduce that fear as possible. Why is that so important for you to do that? I know, I think like, I think like knowledge is power and things that we don't know about are so scary, especially, I don't know, I kind of, when it comes to, one of my big ones would be like fire, and I think when you kind of learn a little more about fire and how it works and how you can fire safely and the actual statistics of having a house fire and the statistics of you're actually losing everything, like, it's such a low, tiny chance, especially if you're, you know, a careful person. And I think, for me, for the way my brain works, it's just so important to, like, and I always say, and like, it sounds dismissive, but it's only really dismissing myself. Like, I, I got quite good at, like, if my brain is, like, run up and down the stairs, like, you know, ten times, and the house won't catch fire or whatever, I got quite good at being like, well, no, that's stupid. Like, that makes no sense. There's no correlation between what's in your and. You don't need to do that if you're already in quite a good mental place. But, yeah, it's the same with death and stuff. I think the more I understood death and, like, what it is and what actually happens and different rituals around death and, like, how to grieve properly. Because in English and American cultures, I think people are very bad with grief and talking about death when mm -hmm. you lose someone. And, like, I think just, yeah, just, I think, if any comforting, because it, um, it makes you less scared that it's just going to, like, happen to you suddenly in the case of, like, fire or whatever, but it's also just, I don't know, I think the more you confront yourself with something over and over again, you kind of get desensitized to it, whereas if you try and push it away to the back of your mind, it's going to scare you if it appears somewhere. Does that make sense? Yeah. I've always had a fear of flying, and <laughs> I've read about the statistics, like, oh, you're much more likely to get in trouble in a car, in a car accident versus the plane, but I have more of the... I guess I feel like, I, I guess maybe it's like I have more control of the situation when I'm driving, when maybe in reality that's not, not necessarily the case. 
Yeah, and I think sometimes, it depends, depends where your brain's at, but sometimes, like, it kind of just makes you think, like, oh, well, then I won't drive. <laughs> it doesn't make yeah. you more willing to fly. It just makes you cut out more things that you can't do. Yeah. Do you, like, learning about things, and then you know the expectations, and, you know, you know how, you know, is it logical or not? Like, is there a, like, for your brain, is, like, there a big connection between, like the emotional versus the the logical or intellectual part of, of your brain? I think so, but I think sometimes, I don't know, especially in the case of death, I think it, I think the more you know, the better, or like the more you can find it, not easier, like, something I wrote about in the book is, you know, being scared of my granddad dying, and he actually died in July, and it doesn't make it any easier, but I think the fact that we both talked about death so much, and he was so honest, and like, he gave me permission to grieve and to take, you know, space to myself while and to talk to people about him and to not, like... I think sometimes when someone you love dies, you think, like, oh, I don't want to bring it up, I don't want to bring everyone down or whatever, but you need to talk and you need to, like... I don't know, I think it helps the emotional things. It's not, like, just the logic of knowing about death and stuff. I think, for me, it was learning a lot more about, like, death denial and how it impacts people and how important grieving probably is. And I think if I didn't have that foundation before I lost someone so much to me I think I'd be like completely even more lost Mm -hmm. (laughs) than I am. Now getting back to the title of your book I wanted to talk about an aspect of that magical thinking. It seems to me that like like the culture here at least in the United States is that it's okay for kids to believe in magic or fairy tales or things like that but if you're an adult that type of thinking is kind of frowned upon so what do you think adults miss out when they don't have the joy in believing in that magical thinking believing in the unbelievable that kids kind of um embrace I think it's interesting because like you know, when I talk about magical thinking, I also mean, like, the idea that, like, your thoughts can impact, like, the outcome of stuff, whether that's, like, believing in the tooth fairy and or, like, believing in Santa and thinking that if you're good, you'll get presents or whatever. And, like, there's some aspects of that that it's not acceptable for adults to do. Like, if you're an adult who believes in Santa. But then, like, and I never want to be, like, disrespectful, but obviously it is acceptable for adults to be religious and to believe in God. And it's, it's kind of a similar exchange of, you know, it's like, if I pray and I do this and I'm good, then I can go to heaven. And it's like, I think everyone kind of has some kind of um, framework of magical thinking, you know, or believing that, you know, if you think about your job all the time, you put everything into your job, then you'll be rewarded for it, which isn't always true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think everyone has, like, a framework of magical thinking. But I, when it comes to, like, actual, like, I guess engaging in, like, believing in things that are a little bit, you know, unbelievable. I don't know. I just think that's... I think adults miss out on a lot, like, neurotypical adults miss out on a lot, even just by denying themselves things that they're interested in. And, like, you know, if, if you really loved, like, Harry Potter when you were a kid or whatever, and that brought you a lot of joy, and, like, that could bring you the same joy going to, like, Harry Potter world as an adult, and, like, life's hard. There's no reason not to, like, I don't know. I, I think we, I think everything would be a lot better if we all gave people a bit more, like, space and permission to do things that make them happy, even if it seems silly. Yeah. I know in addition to your book, you've done a lot, you do a lot of writing. How can people purchase your book and learn about the other thing, wonderful things you've written about? I think my book is in, so it's out in the U.S. already, and it's in most 
the bookstores. I think I've seen it in some independent ones. It's obviously on Amazon and stuff like that. I would always prefer that people buy it from their local bookshop if they can. And then I guess with other work, just by Googling me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram with my name. There's not a lot of people with my name. <laughs> I'm quite easy to find. <laughs> now, you were talking about people just doing or being engaged in the things that they love. And one of the things I love is watching uh, TV shows. And it seems that these days there's more and more TV shows about time travel. And maybe I've specifically paid attention to those because my spouse really loves time travel. <laughs> so we watch a lot of those shows. So, so from what I understand, you're knowledgeable about time traveling characters on film and TV curious what have been some of your favorite characters in time travel so i'm actually not super familiar with anything that's new i guess you and your spouse are more up to date with that because like to me it seems like something that kind of faded out of popularity because like what i write about in my book is that there was like a period of time and again i think it's the same with magical thinking where i think people just want control like people want to believe that like they could go back and change something in their own life, or they could, like, kill baby Hitler, or, like, you know, it's, like, something that we all kind of wish we could do, and I think that's what's so, like, enduring about it. And I thought about it, and, like, my first... It's a few things. Like, I think one of the first games... It's kind of time travel, I guess. One of the, like, the first games I ever played was Zelda, and that was my biggest thing. I don't really... I'm not a big video game person, but Zelda is, like, my... <laughs> a big thing. And I remember playing Oracle of Ages, and... Phantom Hourglass, I feel like there's quite a few Ocarina of Time. <laughs> I feel like, you know, Time Draw is such a fundamental part of Zelda, and that's fun for me. Back to the Future is a basic one, but like, it was a big like first thing. And I was thinking about it, and like I think Donnie Darko <laughs> is like, my big favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of them out there. Uh, yeah, I feel like it pops up in everything that I like, especially like from a certain period of time. Yeah. I remember, I think the first one that I saw that was Quantum Leap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was fascinating to me. Yeah, I think it's something everyone... It's, so, it's such a weird one, I guess it's the same as... I think everyone kind of wishes they had it, but we're so, so aware of like, how many ways it could go wrong. Like, if you think about who is in like, a position to make that technology, it's like, do we really want like, Elon Musk to have a time machine? Do we really? <laughs> <laughs> Probably better left like on TV. Well, that's kind of like the scary things about some of these things, like the, you know, the the people with the with the wealth are going to be the ones that would have access to these things anyway. I don't think it's yeah. just going to be in like like you can sell like a time machine uh, in like Walmart or something like that, yeah. or in, in a local store, <laughs> and everyone could purchase yeah. one. Yeah, like the, the photo strip booth in like CVS or whatever. Like you can like go in and just. <laughs> <laughs> the uh yeah the curtain and then you, and you move to a different time <laughs> i don't know how if it does work i don't know if that's how it works but that would be yeah. <laughs> fun to think about yeah. um, well Marianne, i really appreciate the, your time today thanks so much for uh talking with me oh thank you and i hope yeah i hope you got what you needed out of it. <laughs> absolutely it was a wonderful conversation thanks so much Thanks so much to Marianne for the conversation. To learn about Marianne, please check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. Did you know Autism Personal Coach through our coaching services can help you so that fear doesn't overtake your life? 
If this is something that you're interested in learning more about, please visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it, so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.